0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church that now serves over 180 nations. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Coming in Glory and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 13th, 2005. One of the challenges of following the lectionary week after week is that you can't cheat and weasel out of biblical texts that you find too embarrassing, too strange, or too complicated to tackle, at least not entirely. In fact, this week I will conveniently ignore the Old Testament reading from Judges about the housewife Jael who drove a tent peg through the temple of a Canaanite military commander named Sisera. But three other readings, Zephaniah, Thessalonians, and Matthew, all address what Christians refer to as the second coming of Christ. This is a Christian tenet that I affirm, but which I also find hard to decipher. What what, what might we say? On November 15th, the publisher Tyndale House will release The Regime, the 14th book in the Left Behind series that now celebrates its 10th anniversary this year. When Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins published the first volume, entitled Left Behind, in 1995, who in their wildest imagination would have predicted that this series would sell 62 million books, not including auxiliary products like music, greeting cards, calendars, and movies? These books are neither good theology nor good literature, but they comprise an astounding economic juggernaut. Multiply 62 million books by $20 per book, and you have more than a billion dollars in sales. Clearly, Tyndall House has translated pseudo-prophecy into mega profits for itself and for its authors. Potboiler fiction injects an element of frustration into examining the second coming of Christ, for there is an inverse relationship between its wildly popular influence and its value for Christian edification. Further, they make an easy target for cynical secularists who parody them. That's nothing new, though, for pagans have always scoffed at the early Christians for their hope in the second coming of Christ. In Second Peter 3.4, for example, we read, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Despite these drawbacks, the left-behind books have at least one redeeming feature. They remind us that millions of ordinary people have a palpable longing to understand a fundamental and deeply human question that every person ought to consider. How, when, and where will human history end? Prominent liberal theologians don't offer much better guidance. They tend to be as tentative as the left behind genre is zealous. In his book, The Heart of Christianity, Marcus Borg confesses that he doesn't have a clue, no idea what the end of history or the afterlife might look like. Quote, How can we know anything about it? What does this mean? We do not know. End quote. Similarly, in his new book, The Soul of Christianity, which was just published, Houston Smith, professor emeritus at Berkeley, discusses life everlasting, the resurrection of the body, and hell, but not the second coming. In his 20 or so books, John Shelby Spong, to take a third example, retired bishop of Newark is even more radical. For Spong, the second coming is not the physical return of Jesus to the world, but rather the conscious recognition within each of us of the requirement to love. Liberals get high marks for theological modesty and for reminding us of the broad and diverse ways that Christians have interpreted these complicated texts for 2,000 years. Those are not inconsequential contributions. But it is often not clear to me where their legitimate appeal to metaphor and poetry ends and where an unapologetic affirmation of literal realities begins. In the small Presbyterian church where I grew up, Every Sunday, we confess the Apostles' Creed, one line of which reads, from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Similarly, the Nicene Creed affirms that Jesus shall come in glory to judge the living and the dead. These creeds include this clause because it expresses themes that are broadly and deeply embedded in the Hebrew prophets, Jesus, and in Paul. So, however appealing its modesty, liberal liberal agnosticism tastes like half a loaf that leaves me hungry for more. Nor do I appreciate their implicit and sometimes explicit subtext that early believers were naive and gullible compared to our own critically enlightened mindset. The psalmist for this week who does not mention the second coming of Christ reminds us of an event far more imminent, what we might call our personal end times. He writes, the length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength, Psalm 90 verse 10. According to the Center for Disease Control, the average American can expect to live 77.6 years, but then you die. A reader emailed me last week that she had just buried her father, who had lived to the age of 105, but he too died. So obsessing about the far future of human history pales in significance when we contemplate the certain end of our own personal and private future. The end of planet Earth will take longer than my personal end, but it is every bit as certain. My friend and solar physicist Charles advises me that in about 5 billion years, the sun will expand to 10 million times its present volume morphing into a red giant that will scorch and eventually swallow the Earth. Sometime before then, Earth will be finished history, if not non-existent. If we enlarge our purview to include the cosmic end of the entire universe, physicists are divided, but equally bleak. If the expansion of the Big Bang continues to propel everything outward, our galaxies will fly apart forever although individual galaxies will collapse into black holes. But if the forces of gravity prevail, the expanding universe will eventually reverse its expansion and collapse into a big crunch. In his book, Beyond Science, the Wider Human Context, my favorite writer on Christianity and science, the particle physicist and Anglican priest John Polkinghorne, concludes, quote, it is as sure as can be that humanity and all forms of carbon-based life will prove a transient episode in the history of the cosmos, end quote. From stardust we came, and to stardust we shall return. Our own human failures could complicate and compromise human history much earlier, and so badly that I find it hard, say, to imagine what life in New York City might be like a mere 1,000 years from now. Human civilizations, however majestic in advance, don't last forever. The confluence of ominous global realities, radical economic disparity, environmental degradation, the disruptive forces of technical process progress, population growth in the places that can least sustain it, and the specter of nuclear annihilation that would make a Lahaye fiction look like child's play. All of these remind us that thinking about the end times can be an exercise of enlightenment rather than a delusional escape. When I consider these various end time scenarios, all four four of which are as inevitable as the setting of the sun, I can't say that I find biblical language more outrageous. Sure, it is couched in the thought and language of its own time and culture, as it only could be, just as our thought and language today will sound antiquated two millennia from now. I can imagine one of these scenarios fulfilling, in some sense, the biblical plot, nor do I find the notion of Christ's coming in glory any more audacious than affirming the other two major plot points in the Christian story. Having affirmed that an unconditionally good God scripted both creation and redemption, in the end I consider it a short step to affirming the consummation. Christian eschatology, from the Greek word eschaton, meaning last things, teaches that humanity's earthly end is not the ultimate end. The God who created the world will consummate its redemption. To the believers in Thessalonica, Paul thus wrote that we live with joy and confidence rather than as those who have no hope. Jesus' parable of the talents points us away from theological speculation and toward personal stewardship from eschatology to ethics, if you will. When the end comes, whether private and personal or cosmic and galactic, no one can avoid a judgment of sorts. Exactly how and what did I do with my life? True, describing these major Christian motifs is easier than parsing their details, but few contemporaries of Jesus understood the significance of his first coming, So I am not vexed about unanswered questions surrounding his second advent. I guess that puts me somewhere between La Haye's enthusiasm without enlightenment and Bishop Spong's anemic new reformation. And now a few questions for further reflection. What do you think explains the success of the Left Behind series? Secondly, where do you see human history going? What drives history? Third, do you tend to be more optimistic or pessimistic about humanity's future and why? And finally, who or what has informed your ideas about the second coming of Christ? For my book note this week, I review the book Søren Kierkegaard, a biography by Joachim Garth, translated by Bruce H. Kirms, Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2005, 867 pages. First published in Denmark in the year 2000, Joachim Garth's massive and monumental biography of the Melancholy Dane makes its English debut just in time to commemorate Kierkegaard's death exactly 150 years ago. He died on November 11, 1855. Anyone who has taken a college freshman class in Western civilization or philosophy has a vague familiarity with the name, if not his thought, and some people have even dared to tackle his complicated and brilliant work of indirect communication via pseudonyms and his later direct communication using his own name. In grad school, I remember taking a turn at Kierkegaard, and even now in my office, there hangs a poem by him thanks to my wife's calligraphy. In German it reads, Herr, gib uns blüte Augen für Dinge die Nichts taugen, und Augen voller Klarheit in aller deine Wahrheit. Lord, give us weak eyes for things that do not matter, and eyes full of clarity in all your truth." Kierkegaard prefaced his work, The Sickness Unto Death, with this prayer poem. Although a wild diversity of interpreters, from existentialism to deconstructionism, has claimed Kierkegaard as their own, and although Kierkegaard's personality and complex work present any biographer with an extraordinarily difficult task, Garth shows that he is rightly understood as an artist-poet whose focus was distinctly and deliberately Christian. He treats the reader to large doses of Kierkegaard himself and reviews all his major writings and journals focusing on Kierkegaard's life and not really his thought. In this sense, he treats Kierkegaard personally rather than intellectually or theologically. He starts with his early years and proceeds year by year. I would have enjoyed an epilogue that took a stab at Kierkegaard's ecclesiastical, pastoral, and theological legacies. How did a writer, for example, in backwater Denmark, whose books had print runs of 500 copies, only one of which sold out, by the way, whose grave remained unmarked for 20 years after his death, and who barely traveled outside his own country. How did this person emerge as one of the most seminal thinkers of Christian history? Throughout his short 42 years of life, Kierkegaard battled a pronounced and chronic melancholia that resulted from a number of factors. His pietistic and stern father, his public humiliation in Copenhagen's rollicking newspaper, the Corsair, his sense of victimization, his scathing denunciation of the Church of Denmark's chief bishop, Meinster, in his broken relationship and engagement with Regina Olsen. His hypochondria did not help, nor did his estrangement from his lone surviving siblings. His five siblings and mother all died by the time Kierkegaard was twenty, leaving just Kierkegaard, his father, and his one brother. For much of his life, he tells us, through a monumental effort of repression, diversion, and displacement, Kierkegaard distracted and protected himself from his melancholia through his prodigious writing. And there is no doubt that his melancholia served as a fund for enormous artistic creativity and interior reflection, a fact which is not lost on the psychiatrist Peter Kramer in his recent book called Against Depression. Writing was Kierkegaard's therapy. He once observed, quote, I saved my life by telling stories, end quote. Like Mozart, he just might have been the artistic genius whose sickly body could hardly contain its pulsating brilliance. What infuriated Kierkegaard was pious pretense, intellectual sophistry, the evisceration of the radical gospel, in a bourgeois religiosity that tamed Christianity of what he called its terror. The state-paid clergy, he sneered, derive social and financial gain from the gospel. Listen to Kierkegaard. In the splendid cathedral, the high, well-born, highly honored, and worthy Geheima General Oberhoff preacher, the chosen darling of the important people, steps before a select circle of the select, and movingly sermonizes on a text chosen by himself, Namely, that God has chosen the lowly and despised of the earth. And what happens? No one laughs. Since no one laughed at the discrepancy between genuine Christianity and the pale imitation of cultural Christendom, Kierkegaard intended to provoke a collision or a catastrophe between the two. This was train wrecked by design. He was an agitator and a pyromaniac who employed his literary brilliance to utilize satire as an act of arson. Again, quoting Kierkegaard, I am the one who has set the fire in order to smoke out illusions and trickery. Garth honors his subject, but does not ignore his faults. Kierkegaard could be unctuous, petty, shrill, cynical, inaccessible to anyone he did not care to see, and vindictive. One subject of his lethal pen lamented, quote, he could make you feel small, end quote. His father was one of the wealthiest people in Denmark and it was not lost on his critics that Kierkegaard never worked while he enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle. But he had little money at his death and financed most of his publications. One observer complained that while Jesus cried over Jerusalem, Kierkegaard employed dripping sarcasm to laugh at the church. There is something like a scorched earth smell in Kierkegaard. It is hardly news that the church swarms with many faults, as John Calvin once put it. I rather like the choice of the feminist Catholic writer Joan Chittister, who describes herself as a loyal member of a dysfunctional family. Still, we can thank Kierkegaard for never letting us forget the ideal, how far and so self-servingly we fail it, forcing us to consider what it might mean for each of us as a single individual whom he addressed to live up to that ideal. For film this week, I review The Endurance from the year 2000. In August 1914 Sir Ernest Shackleton in a crew of 27 men and 69 sled dogs sailed from South Georgia Island headed for the Antarctic continent. They intended to become the first team to traverse its 1500 miles. They never got started. Six weeks later and only 100 miles from their starting point their ship ground to a halt in the endless pack ice. Eventually, the ice crushed, splintered, and sank the Endurance. Their saga over the next two years has proved to be one of the most remarkable and best-documented stories of human survival, bravery, and leadership ever told. After drifting clockwise for 10 months and 1,300 miles on the massive melting ice sheet towards open sea, the crew abandoned their doomed vessel, boarded their lifeboats, then took six months to find its way to Elephant Island. Shackleton and six of his crew then navigated a 22-foot lifeboat 800 miles in 17 days back to South Georgia Island. After several failed attempts, he finally returned to Elephant Island and rescued the stranded crew. Not one crew member was lost. Using ship logs, crew diaries, original photography, including stills and motion pictures by the ship photographer, interviews with descendants of the crew, and assorted historical archives, this film documents what has been called the most successful failure ever. There are many books on this drama, but our family's all-time favorite is Alfred Lansing's book called The Endurance. This film is incredible, and I recommend it highly. Finally, this week, for poetry, we post the poem We Wear the Mask by Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who lived from 1872 to 1906. We wear the mask that grins and lies, it hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but O great Christ, our cries to these from tortured souls arise. We sing, but O the clay is vile, beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise, we wear the mask. Thank you for joining JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, November 13th. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.